0: Move from Judah to Babylon. It was totally not by choice. He was abducted, as we're going to see in a few minutes. But let's begin with a word of prayer, and then we're going to jump into this first chapter of Daniel. Father, thank you for bringing us together this morning here at Calvary Chapel Bakersfield. It's been such a blessing to sing and worship together, to pray together as we're doing now, to study together as we're about to do. We pray that you would speak to us through this old story, it's an ancient story, but it's a real story, it's a true story. Real people, real places, real events. From these we trust that that there's something you have for us to learn and to take to heart today. So have your way, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we begin talking about transformation and relocation, the first thing we wanna talk about is Daniel at the food court. So check it out, verses one through seven. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God. And he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. Then the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles young men in whom there was no blemish but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank and three years of training for them so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king. Now from among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. To them the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah Shadrach, to Mishael Meshach and to Azariah Abednego. Now, just to place this on a timeline, This is like six centuries before Christ. So, you know, if we live 2,000 years this side of the cross, this stuff is happening like 600 years that side of the cross. And we know, um, not only from reading the Bible and comparing various passages, but even consulting extra-biblical literature like history, that this was one of three attacks that Nebuchadnezzar made. He came three different times, and he took captives every time. But this was the first of those three times that we read about here in verses 1 and 2. And it tells us that Nebuchadnezzar took Jehoiakim, the king, into captivity. That wouldn't last long. Soon after, Jehoiakim would be dropped right back into the land uh, so that he could reign as a puppet king. But he wasn't the only one who was taken. There were others. Before we talk about those, I want to take you back in time to when you were in school. Remember like middle school, high school, about this time of year, as the school year, you know, wound down, you would get a yearbook, right? Some people called them annuals. Inside would be like everybody's, um, you know, school picture. There'd be a class picture maybe of your entire class. Then there would be those pictures that were taken throughout the year photographers would show up, you know, at the homecoming game or the homecoming dance or various events and uh, would take pictures. So it was always fun, wasn't it, to get that and start looking through it and, and beyond the pictures you knew would be there, look for pictures that you didn't know would be there. It was super cool. Have people sign your yearbook. One of the fun things about the yearbook was, um, you know, when we would vote, right, like on who is most likely to succeed, stuff like that. You remember those kind of little, little polls, little surveys they would take? So Uh, I have a pastor friend who, when he was in high school, was voted most likely to go to hell. (laughs) Ironic, since now he, for a living, helps people not go there, right? Now, if that hurt his feelings, the pain didn't last long, because he soon discovered that in that same survey, in that same poll, his brother was voted most likely to marry outside the species. (laughs) So somehow he found it comforting that he got what he got and not what his brother got. I don't know. These guys we read about, these young men who are taken into captivity um, here in Daniel chapter 1, they would be those voted most likely to succeed. As described in verses 3 and 4, they were physically and mentally fit. Now, almost as an aside, did you notice that reference to the master of eunuchs? If you're like me, you know people who don't take the Bible seriously. You've got friends or family members who don't understand why you do take the Bible seriously. And sometimes they'll say things like, well, I don't take the Bible seriously because, you know, it's filled with contradictions. It's filled with, you know, scientific pre-scientific errors, inaccuracies, historical inaccuracies. Have you heard things like that from people you care about? So, so the next time somebody tells you something like that, the next time someone tells you that, that the Bible's filled with contradictions, for example, hand them a Bible and ask them to show you one. I'm here to tell you that 99 times in hundred, they have no idea where to turn. They don't know for themselves. They're just repeating something that their parents said or that a college professor told them. Um, But on the the off chance that they can turn to a problem passage, because let's be honest, there are some problem passages. There are some passages that are difficult. But here's the thing, if they can take you to one of those, if you'll go and do a little bit of homework, you'll be able to come back with a really thoughtful, well-reasoned response. One of the things that critics of the Bible said for a long time was that that this was an example of, of an inaccuracy or an error in the Bible. They said that there was no evidence that there had ever been any such person in Babylon as a master of eunuchs. And so that carried some weight for a long time until archaeologists found this clay tablet known as the Babylonian Chronicle. On that tablet is a reference to the Rabsaris, which means... You guessed it, master eunuch. So if you were to visit the British Museum, you could see with your own eyes this clay tablet um, that shows us that the Bible was right all along. There really was a master of eunuchs in Babylon. Well, well, back to our text. So Nebuchadnezzar, he had this three-year conditioning program in mind for these young men. He wanted to reprogram their minds. He wanted to change their thoughts and their beliefs. And and there were several different ways that he was going to go about that the first thing he wanted to tackle was their education. Notice in verse 4, look and see it with your eyes, the reference to language and literature. You know, I think it's so cool, those people who can speak more than one language. Is anybody here bilingual, trilingual, multilingual? Maybe I should just say. I'm not so much. Um, My wife Miranda is. She was born in Italy. She was born in Naples to American missionaries in Italy. So those of you who were here last night, got to hear her um, sing the old hymn, something about that name, she did a verse in Italian because she first learned that song in Italian when she was just a little girl. It was really sweet to hear that last night. And I think that's so cool that, you know, she spoke Italian before she ever spoke English, that, you know, if you speak Italian, she could carry on a conversation with you. I love that about her. And the and, and thing is, like, like for me, I'm still, trying to, I'm still trying to nail down English. Like I'm still, I'm still chipping away at my English skills, I remember when my eldest daughter, Lauren, um, she's 27 now and she's a mom now, but, but when she was in school, she took, she took Spanish. And, you know, as a parent, at the beginning of the school year where you go to the school and you follow your student schedule... You know, you're in each classroom for like 10 minutes or something. And the bell rings. You go to the next classroom. Um, that's how it was then. And so I got to meet all of her teachers. And I remember being in her Spanish classroom. I remember that the Spanish teacher was into all things Chewbacca. I mean, he had little Chewbacca's in the room. Lauren says he talked about Chewbacca all year long. Nothing to do with my point. I just thought you should know this guy was really weird about Chewbacca. But so, so he did his little spiel, right? Like each teacher would talk for a few minutes and then they would take questions. And when it came time for questions, crickets, like nobody asked a question. And uh, he tried again to cue it up, you know, and still nobody would ask a question. And, and I felt bad, like, like I should have helped him. You know, I should have hooked a brother up. I should have thrown a question his way just to, just to relieve the awkwardness in the room. And the truth is, I had a question. I had a question I didn't ask. I wanted to know why, after two years of high school Spanish, all I can remember is tu estas loco. Now, now don't get me wrong. That could come in handy at some time or other. But you would just think that after getting a B in Spanish... You'd think I'd remember more than that. Someone told me recently I didn't even say that right. So <laughs> I'm just going to apologize in advance. Um, I should have asked him. At least it would have broken the ice a little bit. Well, listen, the Babylonians were crazy educated. Like We know now that, that for their day, for their time, They were really advanced in subjects like astronomy and mathematics. Now, we're not against education, are we? We're not not anti-education as followers of Christ. The Calvary Chapel movement isn't anti-education. This is a good thing for, for these guys to get more education. If I had my own life to do over again, I would get more education and not less. But Nebuchadnezzar wasn't just trying to educate them. He was trying to move them away from the Bible, You know, the Bible was the book that would help them understand who God was and who they were and what it meant to be a part of this nation that was in this special relationship with God, this nation through whom God planned to bless the rest of the world. It would help them understand why they were in captivity and even how long the captivity might last. The last thing that Nebuchadnezzar wanted was for these guys to read that book. So any other book he could get their nose into was a win for him. He's trying to move them away from the Bible, from this this narrative that would have made sense of everything for them. But it wasn't just their education, it was their culture. Notice in verse 5, see it with your eyes, the reference to delicacies and wine. To these teenage boys, Babylon must have seemed like a food court. I mean, for real, think about it. These guys had been in a city under siege. In ancient times, if you were going to siege a city, besiege a city, I mean, one of the first things you would do is you would cut off their food supply. So, I mean, it's, it's hard enough to keep teenagers fed, right? If you got teenagers at home, like you come home from Sam's Club, and you make trip after trip after trip from the SUV to the fridge, from the SUV to the freezer in the garage, from the SUV to the pantry, and you're finally done. And you sit down with a cool drink to relax, and it's all gone. <laughs> like somehow they've already eaten everything that you just brought in. How does this happen? So, so here's these teenage boys that probably ate like that. And the food supply has been, you know, limited and even, even cut off. They're starving. And here they are surrounded by food once they get to Babylon. That had to be a really difficult thing for them. Um, you know, we're going to talk more about that in just a moment. But, but I want you to understand that the Babylonians were super cultured. I mean, we know because of the archaeological digs in that part of the world that they had extraordinary objects of art and culture. And there's nothing wrong with culture, right? There's, there's nothing wrong with being exposed to things that might come under the umbrella of culture or being cultured. But again, Nebuchadnezzar wasn't just trying to enrich them with cultural experiences. He was trying to move them away from their God-given lifestyle. In the Bible, in the Old Testament, they had these dietary laws, lists of things to eat, lists of things not to eat, even instructions about how the foods they could eat were to be prepared, And so think of it. Imagine that for Daniel and his friends growing up the way they did, every single time they sat down at a meal, surrounded by the people that they knew and loved, they're sharing a meal together. Every single time they would be reminded based on what was on the table, based on what was not on the table, based on how the things on the table had been prepared, they would be reminded that they belonged to God. They would never have a meal and not be reminded about that. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't want them thinking about that. So he's trying to move them away from their lifestyle, their education, their culture, the third and final point of attack, their religion itself. Notice in verse six, see it with your eyes, the reference to new names. Have you ever wished you had a new name? Ever thought about changing your name I've always had an interesting relationship with my own name. My last name is Rig. And, uh, you know, growing up, it didn't take long at all for kids to figure out that Rig rhymes with pig. So I quickly became Rig Pig and then just Pig. Pig. And because people cannot help themselves, like they cannot imagine that my name could be Rig. It has to be Riggs. Surely there has to be an S on the end of it. So just as Rig inevitably becomes Riggs, Pig inevitably became Pigs. So I'd be walking down the hall. Somebody would see me and be like, hey, Pigs. What's up, Pigs? I hated that. That was terrible. You know, I, 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 wanted, to, I wanted to change my name, maybe have a different name. But, but then I thought, well, I, I've got an idea. Maybe, maybe I could redeem my name someday. You know, maybe there'd be a way that, that I could make something, something good out of my name. For example, you know, if I ever had a son, I could name him Big. Because Big Rig would be the coolest boy's name ever. Tell me I'm wrong. I mean, it'd be awesome, right? So I never got to pull the trigger on that one, man. I've got two daughters, one granddaughter, still waiting on a Big Rig. Hasn't, that hasn't happened yet. Hasn't been one in the family, um, <laughs> you know. But then, then in the '80s, like like I was in Hollywood for a few years in the '80s, playing in a Christian glam rock band, spandex, lipstick. You don't want to think about it too long, cause like you can't unsee that. Once you've imagined it, it's like burned in your brain. Um, but but so so you know, in in Hollywood, I didn't use the name Rig. I performed as. As, uh, as Alan Lee, and I'll talk about that in a moment. But, but in the beginning, before I took a stage name, I thought, well, I know what I'll do. Like, like after the band you know, has its run, then I'll have a solo career. And so I'll drop some solo albums. And the first solo album, well, let's see here. I could call the first solo album Rigmarole, because it sounds kind of like rock and roll. And then if I follow that up, I'll do one called Rigatoni, just because I can. And then when I'm tired, you know, I'm just ready to maybe go out one last time, drop one last album, one last tour. Then we're going to call it, so I'll call it Rigor Mortis. That'll be the name of the last. Well, like I say, I never got to do that because I ended up adopting a stage name, Alan Lee. Now, Lee is a play on my middle name. Just like I never really liked my last name, I hated my middle name. I'm going to tell you what, it, what my middle name is, but before I do, let me just apologize to everyone who has this name, because I don't mean to hurt your feelings, but I just didn't like it. Like, like, my middle name is Leroy, and I never liked it. I never felt like a Leroy. I didn't think I looked like a Leroy. I don't know what a Leroy looks like or what a Leroy feels like, but it wasn't me. You know, I just didn't, and I'm a junior, so my dad is Alan Leroy Riggs Sr. I'm Alan Leroy Riggs Junior. Now, I really didn't want my friends to know that my middle name was Leroy because then I'd be Leroy Pigs forever. I mean, it would just be horrible. It'd be so, so bad. Well, you know what happened? It's the coolest thing. Um, when I was pastoring in Austin, Calvary Chapel Austin, that I led for 18 years, um, my grandmother, my dad's mom, came to visit me. It was. I didn't know. I didn't know then, but it was the last time I would see her on this earth. And I'll see her again. I know where she is. Man, she loved the Lord. She's waiting in heaven for me. It's going to be a happy reunion. But I'm so glad I got that time with her because, well, among other things, I got to ask her some questions that I'd always had. And one of those questions was what in the world she was thinking when she gave my dad the middle name Leroy that I then got stuck with. Like, like why? You know what I found out? I found out that she gave my dad the middle name Leroy after her favorite uncle. She had this man that she just adored. His name was Leroy Lemon. Whoa, Lemon? I mean, it's like a character out of Willy Wonka or something. Leroy Lemon, like, what? But but just knowing that she loved this man so much started to soften my heart. And then after my grandmother passed away, I saw this book. My dad had this book that a family member had put together and made a limited number of copies of. And it had a bunch of family photographs that I knew nothing about. I mean, some of them were really old, you know, black and white pictures. And so here's this one picture. There's like five men in this picture. I'm related to all of them. In the picture is Uncle Leroy. And they're all musicians, they had a band. They're all holding instruments and stuff. And now I'm like, man, how rock star is Leroy? Like Leroy is the most rock star name ever. Isn't it funny how learning something about a name, the meaning of a name or the why of a name, it can can really change how we feel about it, right? And that is so true about this Bible story because, well, I won't break it down for you. No doubt Pastor Mike has done that. And you can go on, you know, almost any Bible study website and click on the words to see what the original Hebrew names meant. But all of their given names, Daniel and his friends, all of their given names spoke of the one true and living God. But if you look at all of their new names, all of their new names spoke of gods that were worshiped in Babylon. So kind of like I said about their food, every single time growing up throughout their lives, every single time these guys were called by their given name, they were reminded about God. Nebuchadnezzar didn't want them being reminded about God. He didn't want them thinking about the one true and living God. If anything, he wanted them thinking about these other gods that were worshiped in Babylon. So again, at that point, he's specifically going after their religion. You know, that we face a similar enemy. We have a spiritual enemy. Sometimes we call him the devil. We call him Satan. We call him Lucifer. We we call him the evil one. He too has a conditioning program. It's not a three-year program like Nebuchadnezzar's. We only wish it was a three-year program. It's, It's like a lifelong program. Satan is chipping away at us every minute of every day, like, like the guy never takes a day off. He doesn't even clock out for lunch. I mean, he's just he's on it all the time trying to get us to move away from the Bible, to get us to move away from a better life, to get us to move away from God. So, so how's it going for you? Before we transition to our second point, are you moving toward the Bible or away from it? Are you moving toward a better life, the life that God has for you, or are you moving away from it? Are you moving toward God himself, or are you moving away from him? Daniel at the food court. Let's look at Daniel in a food fight. This time we're gonna read verses eight through 14. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now God had brought Daniel into the favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel... I fear my lord the king who has appointed your food and drink, for why should he see your faces looking worse than the young men who are your age? Then you would endanger my head before the king. So Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had set over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days and let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be examined before you in the appearance of the young men who eat the portion of the king's delicacies. And as you see fit, so deal with your servants." So he consented with them in this matter and tested them 10 days. Now, have you guys ever been in a food fight? I'm not talking about at home, in, in in your dining room, you know, with your siblings. I mean like in a public place with strangers. I've totally been in one of those. It's back when I was in middle school. And, uh, you know, I'm there in the cafeteria with my buddies. You know, I got my posse around the table. And, and, and like the place is packed. The din of conversation is so loud that... You know you could barely hear your friend from across the table but you know what I did hear I did hear these two words food fight the next thing you know visibility was cut to zero like food is flying in every direction you guys have heard of the food pyramid we built it like right there in the middle of the cafeteria we built the food pyramid <coughs> excuse me and I'll never I'll never forget what happened next now I got to tell you, I just have to apologize up front. Like, this is so wrong. It's so wrong to make fun of someone's personal appearance. I was in middle school. You got to cut me a little bit of slack. I get like the middle school slack here because this is really wrong. But but we called our assistant principal Link because he reminded us of the missing link. The reason why is because he had a forehead that like went on for days. Like... Like, I mean, if he stood in the snow, you'd have to build like a ski lift to get to the top. It was was like if you were going to buy him a visor for his birthday, there'd be no point. I mean, for him, it was like original equipment. I mean, it just, okay, so you get the idea. So we called him Link. So here's the food fight. Here's the food pyramid being built. Link walks in, and some kid launches a milkshake. And so I can still see this styrofoam cup, you know, just just spinning through the air it's spinning so tight that frozen treat staying packed in there until it hits link in the head and then i can still see that chocolate milkshake running off the end of his pale forehead it was awesome (laughs) i don't remember very much of that school year but i totally remember that i mean that was like an academic highlight so great the food fight in middle school so the weird thing is As you think about this whole situation, here's Daniel and his friends. They're in the food court. The people around them are are downing the delicacies and washing it down with wine. And Daniel, of all people, yells, food fight! Why would Daniel want to fight about food? Well, you'll notice in verse eight, the word defiled appears twice. So remember, we talked about how they had dietary laws. In the Torah, the dietary laws told them what to eat, what not to eat, how to prepare the things they did eat. It's possible that some of the food that was served to them wasn't kosher, that it was on the not to eat list. It's also possible that some of the food they were served had been dedicated to idols as a student of the New Testament, you know that, that the first Christians had a real struggle with this because some of them lived in cities where there was no meat available that had not been dedicated to an idol. And they weren't sure what to do. Well, that practice of dedicating me to idols even predates Christ. Like like it was an Old Testament practice as well. So that could have been an issue for Daniel and for his friends. You know, of course, Paul argues that because the false God is just that, a false God, it doesn't actually exist. The meat had been offered to nothing and to no one, and therefore there was no reason not to eat it. But he also suggested that we need to be sensitive to our own conscience and even to the conscience of other people. But maybe this was something that, that Daniel and his friends had to take into consideration um, as well. Maybe that's you know why they, they called for this food fight, why they wanted to fight about food, so to speak. You know, it might seem like an all-you-can-eat buffet is a small thing especially for these kids who were so hungry. Like, like, I mean, they're in this competitive situation, right? They don't really know what's going to happen. They don't know if the people that lose the competition are going to be offed. What's going to happen? Like, Like, don't you think they were tempted to cut corners to get ahead? Don't you think that it would have been a temptation to to do what everybody else was doing, to be competitive, to give yourself an opportunity to win in this thing? I mean, isn't that what we see in our world? We see it certainly in the sporting world. It's an issue all the time. But we see it in life in general. Cutting the corner isn't what Daniel wanted to do. You'll notice it says in verse 8 that he purposed in his heart. He had a purposeful heart or a heartfelt purpose. He was a man of integrity and a man of character. I mean, what is your purpose in life? One of the things that I've observed is that if our primary purpose is to do, we'll be tempted to cut corners. Whereas over here, if our primary purpose is to be, will be less tempted to cut corners. If the most important thing to me is to achieve and to accomplish and to accumulate, I'm all about doing, I'm likely to be tempted to cut corners to do that. But over here, if my primary purpose is to be Christ-like, it's to be spiritual, it's to be mature, it's to grow, it's to develop, it's to have integrity and character, well, then I'm not going to be tempted to cut corners. And, And you know the other thing I've noticed just from a very pragmatic standpoint, is that here's the lie we tell ourselves. When we're doers first and beers second, the lie we tell ourselves is that we're just one thing away from focusing on who we're becoming. As soon as I get this promotion, I'll focus on my spiritual growth. As soon as I complete this deal, as soon as I save this much, as soon as I accomplish that, you know, whatever the milestone is, that's when I'm going to focus on being. We don't ever get around to being. Doers, people who are doers first, almost never get around to being. But over here, people who are beers first... People who are really focused first and foremost on their relationship with God, on loving God and loving others and growing spiritually, they almost always get around to doing. So how much better is this path where we put being before we put, before we put doing? Something to think about for sure. Well, I love that Daniel didn't just refuse to eat. I mean, he could have been like that toddler that's like not going to eat no matter what. He could have been like, mm-mm, mm-mm, mm if you tried to feed a toddler, you know, like your, your kid or your grandkid? And it doesn't matter what you do. You could do the helicopter and the airplane. boop, You know, and they're just not going to open their mouth. Or worse, they're going to take it into their mouth and spit it right back out in your grill. I mean, that's, oh, that's just not cool at all. Daniel could have been like that. But he didn't just refuse to eat. And he didn't give up when the chief eunuch said he couldn't help him. Instead, he suggested an alternative to the steward. I love that. You know that saying, if you're not part of this, if you're not part of the solution, then you're just part of the problem. And the truth is that anybody can point out a problem, and most people do, but few people offer a solution, and even fewer will roll up their sleeves and own that solution, like making it happen. And trust me, this doesn't just happen outside the church, it happens inside the church. Those 18 years that I led Calvary Chapel in Austin, Texas, if I had a dollar for every time someone came up to tell me what was wrong with the church... Or, you know, why, why don't we have this? Why don't we have that? We should do this. We should do that. We shouldn't do this. If I had a dollar for every one of those conversations, I'd never have to work another day in my life. But I can tell you that there were so few people who really had a solid idea what to do about the problem they saw. And it was an even smaller subset of that that were prepared to roll up their sleeves and do the work to make it happen. Or prepared to, to pony up to make it happen, to do what it took to make their ideas a reality. It was always something that I needed to do or my family or my staff, was something that we needed to pay for, but not something that they were ready to own themselves. So let me just ask you, I mean, do you want to excel? Do you want to distinguish yourself at home and at work and at school? And yes, even right here at Calvary Chapel Bakersfield. Well then, Be a problem solver, not just a problem spotter. You'll just be head and shoulders above the rest. Now, in transition, you know, you'll notice, of course, that this this diet was a vegetable diet. And I've discovered that there are two kinds of people in the world. There are veggie lovers and there are veggie haters. I am a veggie lover. How many veggie lovers do we have? Yeah, quite a few. How many veggie haters Yeah, see, some of you, you could barely get your hand up over your head because you're like undernourished. You need vitamins and minerals and all the things that would come from eating vegetables. I mean, you know you're a veggie lover when you love veggies that other veggie lovers hate. Did you follow that? You throw out some things I like and see who's down. Like who's down with the artichoke hearts? Oh, 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 come on. So good. How about Brussels sprouts? Oh, man, love me some Brussels sprouts. What else might someone eat that's, you know, like it would be acceptable to a vegetarian? Let's say hominy. I love hominy. Anybody down with the hominy? Yeah, I'm losing. See, I'm losing votes now. I'm, it's on the decline. How about this? Lima beans. Come on, man. Now, smother them in butter and salt. ho oh, so good. So good. Now, even though I love all that, Don't get the wrong idea. No one's ever mistaken me for a vegetarian. I love my meat. Love it. We had some great barbecue last night at the couple's event. And now you're like, oh, why didn't I come? I knew I should have come. It was really good. Um, We had a favorite when we were still living in Austin before we moved back to California several years ago. We had a favorite barbecue place in Austin. It was called Pokey Joe's Smokehouse. And they had my favorite restaurant t-shirt that I've ever seen. You know what it said? It said, It said, vegetarian is Indian for can't hunt. I love that. That's how we roll in Texas. I've got another pastor friend who says that if God didn't mean for us to eat animals, he wouldn't have made them out of steak. I think that's a philosophy to live by right there myself. But but my whole point would just be that these guys ate a vegetarian diet, but, but, but for the reasons we've talked about. So it's okay to be a vegetarian. It's okay not to be a vegetarian. It's okay to be vegan. It's okay not to be, you know, we're free in Christ to eat how we want to eat. But we've talked about Daniel at the food court and the food fight. Finally, let's talk about Daniel with food for thought. This time we're going to read from verse 15 through the end of the chapter through verse 21. And at the end of 10 days, their features appeared better and fatter in flesh than all the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacies. Thus, the steward took away their portion of delicacies and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these these four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Now, let's actually... Let's just stop right there for one minute, throw a curve to the guys on video. Let's, let's break right there. We'll come back and read 18 to 21 in just a moment. But stopping right there for a moment. So these guys were in a competitive eating situation, right? I mean, can you believe that competitive eating has become a thing? Like, have you ever turned on your TV to a sports channel and people are eating? Like, when did competitive eating become a sport? It's so weird, right? But it's true. And if you've watched any competitive eating at all, you probably know the name Joey Chestnut. I mean, if you're wondering, like, the bottom line on all of this, Joey Chestnut is banking $200,000 a year stuffing hot dogs and hot wings down his throat. Now, had you known when you were a teenager that you could get paid to eat like that, would it have changed the trajectory of your life? I mean, you could have skipped college or some kind of a trade school. You could've just like gone to the all you can eat buffet nearest you and started building your skills. I mean, you might've had an entirely different career, right? Well, so these guys were in this competitive eating situation and they won the competition with this diet of vegetables. Before you run to Whole Foods or Trader Joe's, wherever you like to get your produce, notice the fine print on this diet. It says they were fatter in flesh. Now. I'm no marketing genius. Like, like, I don't have a degree in marketing, but I'm just thinking that's no way to market your diet. Like, I don't think there's any danger at all that Weight Watchers or, you know, any of these other companies that offer weight loss solutions, I don't think anybody's going to adopt that as their slogan. That's not my goal. In fact, I've been counting points for the last year plus because my goal is the opposite of that. But obviously, this has less to do with one's gut and more to do with one's God. So Listen. From a purely pragmatic standpoint, life with God works in a way that life without him doesn't. Let me say it again. Life with God works in a way that life without him doesn't. So what part of your life isn't working? And in what way is that part of your life out of alignment with God? You know, some years ago when I was in Austin, my sister and her family lived in Austin for a season. And she drove a van. And one day she was telling me about a problem she was having with her van. And as I listened to her, I thought, well, it sounds to me like your van's out of alignment. You know, you just need to get it realigned. And so she's like, well, would you go with me to the mechanic? Sure, no problem. So we go to the mechanic, walk in the front, have this same conversation with the guy that was there behind the counter. And uh, he says, same thing. Sounds like you need a front end alignment. Let me pull you up in the computer. So he pulls my sister up in the computer and then he goes, oh yeah, you were here six months ago. We told you six months ago, you needed a front end alignment. Now here's what's never happened in the history of driving. No one has ever been out of alignment and they're driving down the road, they hit a pothole, boom, hey, we're back in alignment. No one has ever driven their car back into alignment and no one has ever just lived their life back into alignment. Like you have to be deliberate. You have to do something on purpose. You have to get intentional about realigning your car and about realigning your life. And so there's such a need for us, you know, to read the Bible, to see what it says about that misaligned part of our lives, to pray and ask God to speak to us about that misaligned part of our lives, to ask wise people around us to speak to us about that misaligned part of our lives. And so now picking it up again in verse 18. Now at the end of the days when the king had said that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and then the king interviewed them, and among them all, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they served before the king. And in all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them, he found them 10 times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in all his realm. Thus, Daniel continued until the first year of King Cyrus. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I hated tests. Man, tests were terrible. I mean, think about your days in school. We've revisited that a time or two already this morning. But think about the pop quizzes, the midterms, the finals. There were written tests and oral tests. There were fill-in-the-blank tests, and multiple-choice tests and true-false tests. I mean, how many of you get PTSD the minute you hear, now take out your Scantron forms and your number two pencil? I mean, it's like, no, not that again. So stressful, right? So imagine this. I mean, three years have come and gone and they're gonna be tested. It's gonna be an oral test. Talk about on the spot. And it's gonna be conducted by Nebuchadnezzar himself. How scary was that? But they aced it. They aced the test. And notice in verse 21, it says that Daniel continued. You know, if we continued reading Daniel, you know what we would discover? We would discover that the story doesn't end in the food court. We would discover that for Daniel's friends there would be a fiery furnace in chapter three. And we would discover that for Daniel, there would be a lion's den in chapter six. The truth is that the tests only get harder in our lives. Do you feel this morning like you're in the food court? You didn't ask to be here. You didn't ask for this disruption in your life. You don't like anything about The unwanted change that you're that you're in the midst of and as you're in this place and you're just feeling perhaps god forsaken like where are you in this lord why would you allow this why am i here let me let me ask you a question because i get that i understand that feeling but if you knew if you knew that down the road for you was a fiery furnace if you knew that down the road for you was a lion's den, and if you knew that the only way you could ever be prepared for the fiery furnace or the lion's den was if you first experienced the food court, could you learn to thank God for the food court? Could you learn to see your time in the food court as a mercy? And maybe this hard time that you're in the midst of right now is just such a mercy from God. You know, the other thing to think about is that, well, temptation, I mean, again, the ways that these guys are being tempted in the food court seem like a small thing. And no doubt they must have thought to themselves, this is just a small thing. This isn't a big sin, it's just a little sin. This isn't a great, big, ugly, destructive thing. It's just a little, tiny, harmless thing. We tell ourselves those, those kinds of things all the time, right? But here's the thing. I'm not saying, I am not, I am not saying that everyone who compromises in a small thing goes on to compromise in a big thing. That wouldn't be true. That isn't always the case. Here's what I am saying. Everyone who compromises in a big thing compromised in a small thing first. So maybe it's time we recognized that the small stuff matters. Or maybe it would be better if we thought about it this way. There is no small stuff. All of it matters to God and all of it should matter to us it's in the food court that our attitudes are being developed that our habits are being formed the decisions that we're making now rather than having nothing to do with decisions we'll make later they have everything to do with decisions that we'll make later but notice again it says that daniel continued dan the man as we sometimes like to call him he would outlast nebuchadnezzar he would outlast the babylonian empire And then the Bible would speak of him in these terms. He's called greatly beloved three times in Daniel, twice mentioned along with Noah and Job and Ezra. And Jesus called him Daniel the prophet. So we've talked about him at the food court, in a food fight and with food for thought. You know, when you go back and read this story later, I think something that might jump off the page at you is how God is all over this thing back in verse 2 it says the lord gave in verse 9 it says god brought in verse 17 it says god gave so here's the thing is you're in the food court right now if you could just sort of push back from the table for a moment and have a look around can you see them can you see god's fingerprints God's fingerprints are all over your food court. Can you see his fingerprints on the place setting? Can you see them on the flatware? Can you see his fingerprints on the napkin dispenser and on the seat back? Can you see his fingerprints on the light switch and on the doorknob? His fingerprints are all over your life. And even when you feel forsaken, nothing that's happening to you has escaped God's attention. Not one bit of it. He knows He cares. And just like he was there for Daniel and his friends, he's there for you. Let's have a word of prayer. Miranda's gonna come back out so we can do one last worship song together. Father, thank you for this Bible story. Thank you that just as Daniel experienced transformation and relocation, so too we can be transformed. Father, I just pray that as we take this lesson to heart, Lord, that even as we prepare to sing this song together, that you would just be speaking to us about our situations and filling our hearts with faith and filling our hearts with hope, giving us peace. Lord, I pray for men and women in this service who maybe just were really struggling when they came to church today. Maybe they're going through something really hard right now, but I pray that in an unmistakable way, they could sense your presence, your nearness, your great love for them. That maybe where there's been nothing but despair, there could suddenly be a trickle and then a flood of hope. Lord, you're so good. You're so good all the time. We desperately need you. We cry out for you. We celebrate. Celebrate your amazing grace in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, you guys want to stand and uh, worship with us?